0: Namaste. So we continue the series on writings of Sri and we had paused for some time because of travel and now we take up uh, the book with which I deeply connect. (laughs) The very first book that had come into my hand, sorry for the personal note, but uh, it is one book which I do believe uh, because of direct experience that the book contains Not just words. I'm sure this is with all of Sherbindo's books. But with this book, it happened that it has the power to transmit the experience which is embodied within it. So that is something very beautiful. I I feel this is true of all of Mother's uh, and Sherbindo's works. So the other day, I was contemplating on this as an aside. Uh, Mother says the age of religions is over. So she was not making a statement. She was not even making a prevision. She was giving a command to the age. And once she speaks, time begins to unfold that which she has spoken. That's why Mother and Shubinda were so careful in uttering certain things. And Shubinda said that uh, if I speak, the forces begin to… Because now it's there, manifested in the universe and it's open and exposed. So very often there is a lot which is concealed which the words become a medium to enter into that. It's not just the spirit that is concealed but the consciousness from which all this has flown. Like the mighty Ganges so I often regard Shura works as the mighty rivers or the Ganges streaming down from the Himalayan heights to which he had risen. So for us, climbing to Mount Everest is difficult, but it's easy to take a dip in the Ganges. So, so these are, this is the Ganges, which has a purifying, transforming effect. So what about the Mother? Mother is everything and everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, of course, that's a way of looking at it. We can look at it in so many ways. So the synthesis of yoga, as we know, was serialized in the Arya from 1914 to 1921. And just as the life divine gave a metaphysical background to what Sri Aurobindo had seen, realised and wanted us to know in terms of what we may call his philosophy. I don't like to use the word system of philosophy because it's not a system but something which is open-ended. So, it's a philosophy, if we enter into it, it leads us to the doors of the infinite. And the eternal. It's not a fixed system. And the synthesis of yoga provides the practical basis. So, those who want to understand, know a little bit about uh, what Shivinda has to say about man, the universe, creation, creator, uh, how they connect, the journey, the evolutionary march of mankind, rebirth, the Atman, the soul, the self, Brahman, Ishvara, Shakti, Maya. The life divine. Those who want to experience and realize the synthesis of yoga, but with a little caveat, and the caveat is this that Sri Aurobindo himself said that the synthesis of yoga is not meant to give practices, but it is meant to give the basis behind the practices. So it is a book of practice. There are enough practical things here. But it gives the basis on what ground should we make the, you know, undertake whatever practice we are going to do. And this is very important. Otherwise, when we read, um, let us on yoga are full of practices. But if you just read the let us on yoga without this background, we are likely to fix it with the human mind into a fixed system. And that's where Shubindra starts. We have these five main big chapters or sections of the book. The first is, Introduction and conditions of the synthesis. Of course, synthesis of yoga. So, what are the conditions? What is the meaning by the term synthesis? Because the synthesis itself may mean different things. Nowadays, particularly, uh, uh, the term divine life has already been patented by a whole group. The term integral yoga has been also, there was an attempt to patent. And I had a big discussion with someone. He continued to say, no, 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 integral yoga is uh, already there in Paraman's Yogananda and here and there. I said, excuse me, <laughs> don't put words which are not there either in Sri or in their writings. Because fortunately I had read those writings which he was referring to. So at the end, no, no, but this means that. I say it doesn't mean that. <laughs> so, so you see, it's important to understand. I have also heard people speak on synthesis and well-meaning people, apparently well-grounded, who said, in a big meeting, the synthesis of yoga is a yoga which includes the body, life, mind, and soul, and spirit. Therefore, it is hatha yoga, plus pranayam plus meditation. <laughs> plus, 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 plus. And I had a difficult time. But he was a very respected person. Very dear friend also. So I, had, so I said, look here please. <laughs> That's exactly what Sri does not mean and he clarifies it and we'll come to that. Uh, then there was another very uh, bit of a funny incident. Uh, so there was a, another talk in another place. Um, so there was a Swamiji who had come from somewhere and people have this idea that if you wear an ochre robe or a white robe or a black gown or whatever, you can speak on anything. You are now a Brahma <laughs> So people asked him that what is meant by uh, all life is yoga. So, he said, very simple. Everything is yoga only. You are eating, it is yoga. You are sleeping, it is yoga. He is saying, everything anyways is yoga, which is subconscious yoga, obviously. So I asked him that, have you read the synthesis? He said, no. I said, then you, this sentence comes there and he spoke about all life is yoga. Uh, Why? Because this sentence had touched me very deeply. One was Shurwindo's name when I came across this book. I can't resist uh, sharing some of these uh, beautiful things. And when I opened the book, I read all life is yoga and I felt all my queries are answered. Whatever I ever wanted to know, the path that I wanted to undertake must be here. Because of this one sentence which appears in the, I don't know now because uh, new editions, but in the older ones, SABCL, and from that they had taken out the books. So there was this All Life is Yoga by Sri Aurobindo. There have been seminars and all kinds of things. People have spoken, uh, you know, different things. But here we will see exactly from the source what he means by the word All Life is Yoga, by the phrase All Life is Yoga. So, it's a wonderful book and my personal connect, as I said, was, it was the first book that Shorabhinta gave in my hands and literally every chapter I would read, I would start having an experience and it was like totally mind-boggling, <laughs> awe-inspiring and I was so lost because I was wondering, what is this happening? <laughs> I couldn't even, that time, had, didn't have the mental acumen to even express what I was experiencing. I would just become very quiet. And for hours I'll be quiet because something is happening inside which I can't describe. Uh, I was fortunately or unfortunately married. Fortunately because my wife understood he's still sane. Unfortunately because everybody else felt he is going to take sannyas. He's going to leave everybody. And time to time will nudge me that, uh, you know, with nice food and all as if I'm enjoying it or not. Have I really? But I couldn't just help it. It's such a book, such a wonderful book, such a powerful book. So, it has five basic uh, big sections. One is introduction, the conditions of the synthesis, where he takes us through a quick resume of the evolutionary journey. And the second is the yoga of divine works, which Shurvind always said is the first, most, is one of the best ways to enter into his yoga. Uh, So, there are two ways he said one could enter into this yoga one is being grounded in Vedanta he himself says, my teaching starts, in one of his letters to Maharani of Baroda, that my teaching starts with the ancient Vedantic teaching, that there is one reality. But practically, he has said, those who have practiced the yoga of the Gita, they can enter into it very beautifully, very swiftly. Of course, there is a difference between the yoga of the Gita and the yoga of divine works, as he reveals here, and when we come to that, we'll see the difference. So, the yoga of the Gita is the, uh, what Sri calls calls the ordinary karma yoga, where karma is a means to uplift a consciousness, to purify, refine it, and eventually to discover the inner freedom while engaged in works. This is the yoga of the Gita. Whereas yoga of divine works, as the name itself implies, is to not only be free inwardly, but to do the divine works in the world, conscious of the divine will and its impact upon the instruments, through which the divine will is pouring upon the world So there is a difference Then it comes The next is the yoga of integral knowledge Here again we see there is a difference Between the traditional Jnana Yoga Which is about discovering the self So I have a Hindi In, a, in Hindi I put it like that In one of the songs that I had written Sar bhi tum. So Sar is the essence So Jnana Yoga is that Discover the essence So you discover who you are Who am I? It's a great discovery. But who am I must be complemented with what is this world? So, sarbhitum Sansarbhitum. So, integral knowledge is not just the knowledge of the self, <clears throat> but self as it manifests through the manifold activities in creation. That's why we see something very interesting in Sri um, you know, when he speaks about the four great goddesses, uh, which initially... I think many people, uh, at least I was surprised when I saw Maheshwari and not my favourite deity at that time, Mahasaraswati, as the goddess of uh, knowledge. But uh, then I realised learning and the manifold activities, the detailed knowledge is Mahasaraswati and the larger lines is Maheshwari. So Maheshwari lays the large blueprint, she lays the blueprint of the creation. But the details, which are more important, that's how the blueprint will be executed. The bricks to be laid, how they have to be laid, exactly how they have to be cemented, the color, the the interiors, everything is Mahasaraswati. So, integral knowledge is that knowledge, which is not only the knowledge of the one, but also of oneness in multiplicity. So, that when we come to that, we'll see. I don't want to rush through this book. So, then there is the yoga of divine love. So, here again we see shobindo distinguishes between the traditional bhakti. The traditional bhakti stops at <coughs> discovering the divine beloved within you. And then you are in ecstasy. Who would want to come back to the world after that? The mother once describes that how she would walk in the guest house, in the veranda with uh, Sri Krishna. It was so beautiful. And then next was with Shoravindu, he came. Sri Krishna was replaced by Shoravindu. They are two who are one. Uh, several ways, several places, mother has explained that. And then even that experience was taken away from her. Then she says, Oh, is it? I'll walk with the Supreme. <laughs> it's so. <laughs> then she says, I understood. Basically, it is such a beautiful state. Who would want to work? <laughs> so, Sri Krishna went away that no, no, she is now in that delight that <laughs> Shurabindo she called and Sri was there. But Shurabindo realized that she has to step out into work. And then Shurabindo also withdrew. Then she said, Doesn't matter, I'll walk with the Supreme. <laughs> Till the Supreme himself gave the command to turn toward the earth. There are so many places, you know, Amritha, when he once uh, asked Sri uh, Mira Devi, as she was called at that point of time, Shabindra has even written her name as M-I-R-A Mira Devi in some of the letters. So both spellings are correct. M-I double R-A and M-I-R-A because Shubhinda has sanctified it with his own writing. So he said, uh, Mira Devi is a great yogin, isn't it? Shubhinda said, yes, very great indeed. He said, but she doesn't give meditation. She used to remain. Mother never used to come out easily or... She said, yes, but one day impelled by the divine love, she would come out into the world and that indeed will be a very great day. So it is divine love which loves God not only within, but loves God in this creation, loves God in man and beast and bird and stone and sky and mineral and gods and titans and discovers him and his rapture and serves him because Love that does not translate into acts of service is obviously incomplete. So love comes as the crown. So we see divine works, integral knowledge and divine love. Then after laying all this foundation, he comes to the yoga of integral self-perfection. So if you read the editor's note, <clears throat> sometimes these notes can be unnecessary, misleading. Uh, yes, I say this with responsibility because uh, if you read the note, The note says that um, he wrote this, each installment was written immediately before its publication. The work was left incomplete when the aria was discontinued. Okay, so if somebody has not gone through the book, oh, this is an incomplete book. The work was left incomplete. Now this occurs again. Srivindu never attempted to complete the synthesis. He did, however... Lightly revise the introduction, thoroughly revise all of part one, and significantly revise several chapters of part two. More than thirty years elapsed between the first appearance of the synthesis in the Arya and the final stages of its incomplete, incomplete revision. As a result, there are some differences of terminology." Well, that apart. So the incomplete part is the last part, the yoga of integral knowledge. And what part is incomplete? If you read uh, through the chapters, Shubindu is writing the Supramental Time Vision. Now, if somebody has reached to a point where one can experience even a little bit of what that Supramental Time Vision is, where you have not only the triplicity of time in your all-comprehending consciousness, but you also simultaneously experience what forces are being deployed at the given moment. So it's not just the Trikal Drishti, as we know of the Rishis, but also the Rit Chit of the moment. It's an amazing vision, and I can understand. I mean, what would he write if he had to write after this? So it's a long, long journey through which Shobindu takes us, a wonderful journey. And I do believe that people who want to take up the practice of yoga, this should be a first read and then, or a simultaneous read, read, along with, of course, the mother and letters on yoga, the mother with letters on the mother, letters on yoga, and of course, Savitri and prayers and meditation, which are like permanent companions for those who want to take up this yoga. So, as we know, this lays the background, and this background is so wonderful. So, people may say, okay, I'll read the life divine for the philosophy. Actually, you don't have to. Because in the first five chapters, the conditions of the synthesis, he very quickly, from the practical standpoint, he covers a lot of background. He doesn't use terms like Brahman. All that will come when he speak about the integral knowledge. He'll speak about Brahman. He'll speak about Ishwara. He'll speak about Maya. Everything will come here. But he will give us a beautiful quick background and we'll read a little bit of that. So, there are five chapters and um, we start with the first chapter. In fact, here there is much more, I, I this is my personal uh, take on it. For instance, there is a whole chapter on the Ananda Brahman. You no, you don't find that in the life divine. Of course he speaks about it. It's there in the Upanishad, Raso Vaisaha. But Shravindu takes pains to describe what is Ananda Brahman? What is that Raso Vaisaha of the Ken Upanishad? So, here we have the very first chapter, Introduction, the Conditions of the Synthesis. And it starts in such a way, you feel that here is the divine master like the Himalayas with a 360 degree and the circular degree and beyond. Now, he starts in. I want to read this um, quite a few pas- lines from this very first passage just to give a feel of how Sri starts. The chapter is Life and Yoga. There are two necessities of nature's workings which seem always to intervene in the greater forms of human activity, whether these belong to our ordinary fields of movement or seek those exceptional spheres and fulfillments which appear to us high and divine. Every such form tends towards a harmonized complexity and totality, which again breaks apart into various channels of special effort and tendency only to unite once more in a larger and more PUSA synthesis. Now, this lays the background. As a doctor, I, I mean, I would say that, you know, as an MBBS you have a larger harmonious view of the human, but then you specialize. I often say that, you know, being a specialist is not necessarily an advantage. And I've seen, you know, you have a pain abdomen, simple thing. You go to a gastrointestinal surgeon. Now, oh, he is looking at it as appendicitis, is very keen. You go to a gastrophysician, he looks at it differently. Maybe there is just a gastritis, maybe there is just a little infection. I'm telling you the facts. You go to a cardiologist, he will say, we must rule out. Maybe there is a cardiac problem, we must get the enzymes, even though there is the possibility of acid reflux. You go to a psychiatrist and he'll say, it's all in the mind, okay. So... So, specialization has its advantages, but also it must keep returning back and keep the larger picture. Now, this he will apply to yoga. So, the specialized systems of yoga, while they seem very good because it's like a shortcut, but the disadvantage is it loses the yoga that is going on in creation, going on in nature, and takes you away from this field. Secondly, development into forms is an imperative rule of effective manifestation. So, form is here not only physical but psychological. So, people say, what should be the practice in this yoga? So, someone may say, do namjab. So, that's a form. Another person may say, you do meditation. And so much time, this is the process. That's a form. So, he's saying... Development into forms is an imperative rule of effective manifestation. Yet, all truth and practice, too strictly formulated, becomes old and loses much, if not all, of its virtue. It must be constantly renovated by fresh streams of the spirit, revivifying the dead or dying vehicle and changing it. If it is to acquire a new life, and this happens to every form. See, when you come to ashram, in the beginning you go to the samadhi, F- forget about living here. First time when you come from far, you know, when you go to samadhi, you are like thirsty for ages. And you feel that every drop, every moment that you spend here is eternal. I remember someone who spoke to Usha Ben. Usha Patel who was, um, so, Hasmuk he was sharing with me. I told her, he, she asked him, are you coming to Pondicherry? He says, I don't know, I have just one day in between, I have to fly back, but I have a day, I'm just thinking. He said, don't think, even if for half an hour you come. So he came. <laughs> so he said, I, what a power, you know, just even for half an hour. Yes, it happens. Then, the second day, it's nice. Third day, you start observing the people. <laughs> Fourth day, it's hai. It's also coming Now, if you start living here, there is a tendency to get into a mechanical routine. So, it must be revivified. It becomes a lifeless ritual or a soulless mechanical routine. I have gone to ashram and I have paid, done my duty. I have paid my debt to God, as the mother says. It must... Fresh life must be brought into it. Nature has its own ways of bringing fresh life. Sometimes an experience which shakes you, so you bring fresh life. Ma, ma, ma. Suddenly, now it comes from the heart, not just from the... So, But anything which is too strictly formulated, including Namjab, which is so powerful, but the mother spoke about it. I'm not saying something my own. She says, but we don't use it in an exclusive way as it is done generally, because then there is an ascetic tendency to withdraw from life. So it is to be done, it's the one method which mother spoke of, but even that when it is too strictly formulated, I have seen people just move the lips and continuing, now whatever, there is nothing wrong with those who want to follow that. But Sri is reminding us, any practice, meditation, there are people to whom Sri has advised meditation, there is somebody who was here whom uh, the mother had told him to meditate can you imagine from what time? At 1.30 in the night, for three, three and a half hours. Himself told me, Devuda was here, homeopathy, he knew, Pranabdha's brother. He used to get up, and he used to meditate. And, uh, my God, that meditation must have brought so much strength into him that when he was trying to go away from nursing I am trying to explain to him, please come back. I thought he will listen, he used to a little bit have that uh, rapport with him, but you can't hold him that kind of meditation. But he had his own life, which if you look at his life, you'll find it very difficult to understand. So, another, but another person, also whom I know, he used to teach hockey and the mother told him and he showed me in writing, you don't need to meditate. For you, work is enough. So, you see, when we try to strictly formulate a technique which all must do, we lose the natural inner impulsion which should move us. So, here he is reminding us at the very beginning. So, there are people who conduct courses, standard courses. We must be very careful because there are no standard courses for everyone for all the time in even spiritual life. It's a free exploration where your energy is concentrated. That's why it brings the essence, for instance, aspiration. He doesn't say, how you should aspire, focus here, and then, you know, you imagine a flame. He doesn't say all that. You may do that. You may not do that. So, here he's saying, to be perpetually, one of those Mahavakyas which will come again and again, to be perpetually reborn is the condition of a material immortality. He has given us the secret of physical transformation. Of the deathless body, because the body is constantly changing, but very soon you will see that the body again goes back into habitual pattern. It changes, even our consciousness, changes then goes into habit. Changes, goes into habit. And again we flow backward. But to be perpetually reborn, to constantly renew oneself, it requires tremendous courage to start with. (laughs) Sincerity, courage, clinging to nothing except the one thing. And then he says, one of those uh, The world today, this is one of, again, my favorite, the world today presents the aspect of a huge cauldron of media in which all things are being cast, shredded into pieces, experimented on, combined and recombined, either to perish and provide the scattered material of new forms or to emerge rejuvenated and changed for a fresh term of existence. So we know who was Medea was the famous Greek magician and she would make a broth through the magic spell. She would put all kinds of things and who was the person who, Perseus, he was, she could uh, charm by her gaze and fix the person. That kind of power she had gathered and this was one of the tasks given to Perseus. So we have this story of Media was one of those uh, uh, Jadugarni, magician. And then he says, Indian yoga, in its essence, a special action or formulation of certain great powers of nature, itself specialized, divided and variously formulated, is potentially one of these dynamic elements of the future life of humanity. Mark the words, one of, not the only one. It is one of the dynamic elements. And then he reminds so beautiful, The child of immemorial ages, preserved by its vitality and truth into our modern times, it is now emerging from the secret schools and ascetic retreats in which it had taken refuge and is seeking its place in the future sum of living human powers and utilities. Emerging, 1914 Shubind is writing. In 1960, yoga became a household term and today it has become a term internationally accepted. 1914. But, he reminds us, but it has first to rediscover itself, bring to the surface the profoundest reason of its being in that general truth and that unceasing aim of nature which it represents. So basically, we are very proud of yoga India gave yoga and everybody teaches yoga, everybody wants to take up yoga, but what really is yoga? This is the first thing he reminds us. <coughs> As I have shared this every morning, we used to go for uh, cleaning and service in Sri to clean the place, the photograph, do jhadu pucha everything and then come back. So five o'clock, five thirty we would go, come back by six thirty or seven ish. So one day I meet somebody in, in the lift, one, another Air Force officer. It was raining heavily. So he used to see me going um, regardless of anything. Both of us used to go, myself and Kavita. And suddenly he saw and he said, Road uh, Jatiyo, you go every day. I said, Yes. He said, Kaha? I said, ka bhavan. We go there. Now uh, you see between the lift and the fifth floor. He says, You go to do yoga? I was stumped before I could say, he said, huh? It is very good for exercise. It keeps you healthy. I didn't have a pot belly then. Otherwise, he would have said, What yoga you are doing? <laughs> I just simply by the time, fifth floor, my house, this side, his house, that side, Tata, bye bye. So, what really is yoga? We think a set of exercises. So Shravindo in the very next passage reminds us, in the right view, both of life and of yoga, because that's the chapter. All life is either consciously or subconsciously a yoga. Why subconsciously in a yoga? Yoga is union with our own highest self. What this union is meant to provide? Fullness. That's why Shubhendu speaks of integral self-perfection. Perfection is fullness, punata. We are incomplete. But still, even in this incompleteness, even imperfectly, even ignorantly, we are striving for completeness. Completeness of joy which is untarnished. Complete truth, there is no error. Love which is perfect, perfect, perfect. Mr. or Miss so and so is God himself or herself. We are still seeking perfection. So, here he reminds us that in life, it is subconscious yoga, and conscious yoga is when we turn this ignorant ways, even desire is impelling us towards that, into a conscious yoga for which there are, of course, very different conscious means. But before we go to those, he says, For we, we mean by this term a methodized effort towards self perfection. So, at one place Mother says that different avatars brought uh, different angles to the divine. So, Krishna brought freedom and delight. Uh, Lord Rama got an illumined mind to master the animal and the slay the demon inside us. And uh, Buddha, he brought in this world compassion and liberation from the desire and ego self. Christ, she says he brought compassion. So then he says, Vedic rishis, got, they got immortality. They were striving for immortality. What did Surabindo bring? And then she says, Perfection, totality. But then she says something very interesting, but that's a different part. <clears throat> she says, But whether you do this or that or any of these angles, ultimately the first need of human beings is security what a divine mother and she says at every level you are pursuing yoga what is the security that you will arrive what is the security when you fall you will be protected so there are time to time for instance Sri Krishna says I am the security so she takes us that security is that divine love but then This is the first necessity because otherwise if we do it only by our own uh, method, this is the first necessity and then the rest follows. So he says, methodized effort towards self-perfection by the expression of the secret potentialities latent in the being and highest condition of victory in that effort. So potentiality for yoga is latent in everyone. Every thinking creature is potentially. Mother at one place says, even I bow down to cats and dogs and I see them engaged in yoga. That's divine mother. So latent in everyone because this strive for progress itself is a kind of, uh, you know, in ignorance, effort towards yoga. Only we do not know that only this way it can be fulfilled. A union of the human individual with the universal and transcendent existence we see partially expressed in man and in the cosmos. And one of the examples from the Indian uh, scriptures is the Visharup of the Gita where we see the individual fulfilled. Sri Krishna as the avatar who stands in the forefront. Then we see the cosmic form, Visharup. And then we see that on all sides it's escaping into some ineffable, luminous reality that has no end and no beginning. So we see the transcendent, we see the universal and we see the individual so beautifully revealed in the persona of Sri Krishna. So every yogi has to eventually arrive at this fullness. Why? Because individual liberation is not the only goal. The cosmic, there is a march of mankind. Even the collective fulfillment is part of our work. And this cannot be done unless we have discovered the freedom of the transcendent. So, all the three must come together. <clears throat> but all life, when we look behind its appearances, is a vast yoga of nature, who attempts in the conscious and the subconscious to realize a perfection in an ever increasing expression of our yet unrealized. Potentialities and to unite herself with her own divine reality. So this we have already seen, spoken about, it's all about evolution is a manifestation of the divine within but in terms of matter. So it is inclusive unlike the perfection that exists in the divine. In the divine, it exists sans creation. But here, the creation has to become perfect as the creator. So there is a difference. This is a challenging work. <laughs> so... To not only discover that perfection inside, but to express it in life and matter. And then he reminds us, yoga, as Swami Vivekananda has said, may be regarded as a means of compressing one's evolution into a single life, or a few years, or even a few months of bodily existence. So, well, this is uh, yoga. It's a evolution fast forward... How much fast forward can it go? The mother affirmed that what has been said, Sri Ramakrishna has said this, other yogis also, that in three days you can realise union with the divine. And then she goes on to say, and I am not speaking of just sitting in a concentrated way. She says, in, even while you are leading the ordinary life, you don't have to come out and you can realise it. And Shorbindo, now we understand why three days Shorbindo had arrived at Nirvana. Of course, he says, in three days, actually in one. <laughs> That's how he puts it. <laughs> in three days, actually in one, I had realized. All that he was told was see thoughts coming from outside. And even yogi Bhaskalile didn't expect this is going to happen. So he says, I saw them coming and I kept pushing them, kept pushing them, and my mind was free of vast universal intelligence. So, in three days, so it can compress. This is not about yoga of transformations. He's speaking of yoga, union, as fundamental union with the divine. Right now, he's speaking of that. So this union with the divine can be realized, discovery of the psychic being. Of course, people say she has spoken about 30 years. That's a context. Yes, if you don't want to ordinarily, little bit practice, little bit, it takes 30 years. She has even said, it won't do if five minutes of the day, you while going, you casually think about transformation and rest of the day, so (laughs) different things. But basically yoga is conscious evolution and evolution fast forward. And then he describes, you know, so, basically, why he has built this background is that nature is evolving possibilities which are latent inside. How does nature evolve? You have to catch hold of that process. Same thing has to be applied yogically. So, if you look at it, nature evolves through concentration. How does it concentrate? its it, Typical method is crisis, even chaos. You know, when chaos happens, it's so interesting. You suddenly feel the, all that you held in has gone. That's what chaos. Individual level chaos is that. <laughs> all the things you held on to. The virus and the vaccine and the doctors together. <laughs> Everything is gone. So there is chaos. Even the conceptions of God that you held are gone now. This is the time to be concentrated on the divine. That's how she says. When there is confusion all around, just hold on to the divine and let the divine hold you. So what happens? It comes. So nature uses this process. Ordinarily, you bring out your best. There are two kinds of responses people give in a crisis. Either they are finished, or they evolve. Now nature doesn't mind. Majority will be probably you know wiped away. But nature doesn't mind. The few who take the leap are nature's big recompense. So we see in typically in in uh, in these two movies, Hollywood and Bollywood. Uh, what is that southern movies called? I want to use that name, but doesn't matter. <laughs> Tollywood. <laughs> so Hollywood movies you will see. What was it movie the other day? Uh, where water is coming to this level and everything. Uh, Now you see, they will, suddenly the hero will bring out the best inside him in that crisis. The uncharted. And he will go deep, stay, you know, without air. Suddenly he has practiced all the pranayama. But in moment of crisis, you know, and he says he can do it. Now what is crisis doing? Bring out your best. Evolving your capacities in a little way. If the same thing kept happening, he'll become an Aquaman. But that's a different story altogether. But in Indian movies, Hindi movies, there'll be a moment of concentration. Hey, Bhagwan, why And there'll be electricity, magic, lightnings. And there'll be suddenly, you know, and uh, the villain will be paralyzed. Things like that will happen. There are two approaches. But in both the common factor is intense concentration. So nature, what does it do? It uses these means. So here, <laughs> he speaks about yogic methods have something of the same relation to the customary psychological workings of man as has the scientific handling. So again he says yoga, people say it's not scientific. it is very scientific. So what do you do in science? You learn to handle the forces of physical nature. That's how you have electricity. Electricity is there everywhere. In atoms it is there. But when you learn the method and the process, you tap it. That's all. So, in yoga, there are psychological possibilities within us. The spirit is everywhere but involved in mind and the body. Now, there are special processes, methods by which you can bring it out. That's all. There are conditions. Just like if you know the right conditions, you can tap the Electricity, And now we know um, you can run your car with electricity. Similarly, if you tap the inner uh, psychological and spiritual forces, divine forces, you can change, transmute your usual habitual workings of nature. So this is the essential aspect that it is just like, and then he says that just like in science, you keep on replicating and you have the results. So in yoga, you can keep on replicating. But there are conditions. Conditions apply. There is nothing like uh, just magic will happen. Uh, in fact, there is no magic. Even miracles have a process. Only when you know the process, you don't call a miracle. There is a little humorous thing about niruddha saying, Oh, God is all powerful. Uh, uh, but can he really change an ass into a man? He says, well, uh, regarding your ass, if he... If you discover the process, you can change an ass into a human being. But only thing is, you should know the process and you should be interested in doing this. Of course, why would God be interested? So, there is a process here in this world. Beyond in the self of the divine self, there is nothing. Processes means here because the whole machinery and mechanism has come. And then he speaks about Hatha Yoga, uses the uh, bodily uh, energies Um, Then pranayama, the life forces which are flowing through the human system, it catches at the outer end which is the breath and then through the breath the life energies are flowing into the system. So by regulating the breath it tends to regulate the flow of the life energies. And in Raj Yoga you take up the mind and through the mind you uh, recombine our reactions and responses. We'll read about it when we come to the appropriate places. So all this, uh, then devotion, everybody has, loves somebody or the other. People say that uh, we don't, bhakti uh, I have heard people, Bhakti nahi hai, hai wife ke liye hai. You have bhakti, you have bhakti for the wife, you have bhakti for the husband, you have bhakti for the child, you have bhakti for your boss, everybody you have bhakti. but when it comes to God, you don't have bhakti because it seems so intangible and not somebody who will give you immediate result. But sometimes God throws a bait. So you have you know not ki bhakti but Sakam bhakti. So artharthi. that's why he has thrown this bait also. Okay, I'll give you provide you with your desires in the beginning. The Gita speaks of the four kinds of bhakti. So, sometime when you are unhappy with your life, those whom you were doing bhakti, when they, you know, uh, throw at you all kinds of things, then you turn, oh, you are the one I wish I had known. But after some he says, really? And we say, yes, you are the one whom I want to love and connect always. So, okay. So, then another... (laughs) cycle starts, someone comes and oh no 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 so this is how human consciousness progresses but it's not to be despised because human consciousness needs so many experiences to evolve, that's how the mother says these illusions us because every time there is a little different angle through which you approach the problem of life so ultimately in yoga of knowledge you concentrate to know the one truth Normally also we concentrate to know a truth. In material science, so what is this process? So the scientist concentrates and he comes up with a eureka feeling. Ha! Ah, I got the formula. Here you concentrate, I want to know the one self. I want to know the truth behind all appearances. Naturally the concentration has to be much longer and much more intense. But it pierces the veil. And yoga of divine works. where Now you no more want to serve the outer masters, but the one divine master. So he says that it's all... Um, a psychological process, yoga primarily is a psychological process, but as in physical knowledge, the multiplication of scientific processes has its disadvantages as that tends, for instance, to develop a victorious artificiality which overwhelms our natural human life under a load of machinery and to purchase certain forms of freedom and mastery at the price of an increased servitude, air condition, AI, robbing us of our even natural mental faculties to calculate and of course of DI, divine intelligence. So, it it is at its servitude. So, the preoccupation with yogic processes and their exceptional results may have its disadvantages and losses. So, you have to do bhakti this way, navadha bhakti. Every day you must do kirtan. This way only you should meditate. This is a disadvantage. Why? Because you lose the living contact. Who is bhakta? Who takes joy in the Lord? Why should he have a process to enjoying he whom he loves? Whichever way, whatever way, why do you want to tie it? Or in knowledge, a seeker after knowledge, he may be taking a walk and his mind may be concentrated on the divine, behind all appearances. That's how Sri Aurobindo had that great uh, realization. So he says when you do these exclusive practices, the yogin tends to draw away from the common existence and lose his hold upon it. He tends to purchase wealth of spirit by an impoverishment of his human activities, the inner freedom by an outer death. This is what happens. Exclusive bhakti. So you do a service in a temple and you do that every day. Then you want to increase the hours of that kind of service. So then what happens after some time? During that time, you are in contact with God. So, I am personally, this might take when people say, six hours in the ashram context. Six hours works is necessary. I say, what is this six hours worth? <laughs> Everything is work. Every relationship, every person you are meeting, you are eating. Everything is divine service. If you don't keep that in, in the consciousness, then it's very nice, six hours, I have done my work, now I am going to enjoy my life. But that's not, even in enjoyment, that's how the Gita puts it, yukta har viharasya. He's not saying that works means strained. even when you are eating, you are going out, you are meeting people. Still it can be divine service. So, when we have that fixed methods, they tend to, uh, you know, make us withdraw from life. But then you want only those methods. Therefore, we see in India that a sharp incompatibility has been created between life in the world and spiritual growth and perfection. Even now people think material life and spiritual life. So they often ask that, you know, in ashram you have renounced the world and leading a spiritual life. I said, who said we are leading a wonderful material life? What do you mean? I said, see, I've got a house which is as big as a, you know, my house can accommodate 2000 persons. And every day in my house... In the house which I inhabit, 2,000 people have food. Three times a day. Yeah, Olympic-sized swimming pool. What, what are you saying? I said yes. Of course, I sleep in one room, in on one bed, that anyways, I will do that. I said, this is mother's house. <laughs> and everything is there. So, but you're not absorbed and engrossed into it. So this idea, even in that, you discover the divine. Through that, you discover the divine, and there's something very beautiful. At least personally, it it I can share it. Like there was a time when I would connect best when I would write, speak. First, it was writing, then speaking. I would just try to confine myself to these activities. Oh, this is so wonderful, and this is acha, escapist. <laughs> she put me in the middle of everything I "I have no choice but to discover her in everything and everyone because otherwise I can't, life becomes divided, I start seeking this because I know that here I am not so well connected, she said the solution is to get well connected here and not to escape from this into that, so this and that, as Rishi Yagwal says, the mother says, the age in which we are living is that So strongly has the idea prevailed, so much has it been emphasized by prevalent philosophies and religions that to escape from life is now commonly considered as not only the unnecessary condition but the general object of nature. And now comes the master word. To avoid the life which is given him for the realization of that possibility can never be either the indispensable condition or the whole and ultimate object of his supreme endeavour. That's why Shubhinda said ashram is not a place to withdraw from life. It is a shram, it is a labour of another kind. Of his most powerful means of self-fulfillment. It can only be a temporary necessity under certain conditions or a specialised extreme effort imposed on the individual so as to prepare a greater general possibility for the race. It can be a temporary necessity in certain conditions. The true and full object, now he brings the object of yoga, the true and full object and utility of yoga can only be accomplished when the conscious yoga in man becomes like the subconscious yoga in nature, outwardly conterminous with life itself. What a word he has used, you know. Check out a perfectionist. You know, sometimes you feel so wonderful, just what a word he uses, conterminous. Let's see the meaning in the dictionary. I say, this <laughs> kahan se you gaya?" Coexist, we have heard. No, it cannot be coexist. It's like two things which are parallelly together. It is conterminous, it's almost interlaced into each other. Conterminous with life itself and we can once more looking out both on the path and the achievement say in a more perfect and luminous sense all life is yoga. So, um, of course, I won't be taking one chapter every day because then it's uh, long but this one because it gives the background. Then we will of course rush through more maybe two, three two chapters, three chapters sometime depending on this is the background of the synthesis of yoga where he tells us what yoga is, what is yoga. He gives a general term and actually when you look at it like, how can you give a method or technique to this? How can you say when in real life you are dealing, then you have to write a Mahabharata or Mahabharata as says. In every life situation, you can deal with it ordinarily or you can deal with it yogically. It literally means everything, how, not only how to wake up, how to eat, how to sleep, how to meet people, how to speak, how to listen, how to, you know, when you feel irritated, what should be your attitude, what should be your inner state, means. it's a constant process. So, all life is yoga. Namaste.